And I remember doing one with um, the uh, Deputy Foreign Minister with Responsibility for Asia, who said to me, we're going to pull out of Afghanistan. And I thought, yeah, you know, propaganda. You know, and I reported it, and, you know, it went out on the headline on the BBC World Service. But I didn't think, wow, this is it, because I didn't know whether to believe him or not. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Today we have another Cold War contribution from James, who is taking the helm again with a fascinating chat with Bridget Kendall, the BBC's Moscow correspondence from 1989 to 1995 when she was witness to the power struggles in the Soviet Communist Party as Mikhail Gorbachev tried to introduce reform. However, before we start, I'd like to thank our fans who are helping the podcast financially. So how do you join this select band? Well, sign up to Patreon. For the price of a couple of coffees a month, you can help cover the show's increasing costs, keep us on the air, and you get the sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster too. Just go to patreon.com slash coldwarpod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash coldwarpod. You can also help us by leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts, a.k.a. iTunes, Stitcher, our Facebook page, or with your favourite podcast provider. This really helps raise our profile and get new guests on the show. So, back to today's episode. I'm delighted to welcome back James and his Cold War conversation with Bridget Kendall. So, Bridget, thank you very much indeed for your time today. Welcome to Peterhouse. Thank you. So I read somewhere that, that Russia has been in your blood from a, a very young age. Why is that? How did that come about? It's not literally in my blood. I haven't got any Russian ancestry at all. Um, it came about because I was at school, actually here in Cambridge. And um, in those days, um, we had O-levels, <laughs> what now would be GCSEs. And uh, in my school, you could specialise a bit. And you could take up an extra language besides French and Latin. And the choice was ancient Greek, German or Russian. And for me, it was no context, no contest. I wanted to learn Russian. It seemed much more exotic, mm. more politically exciting with a massive literature. And I absolutely fell in love with it straight away. So I started learning aged 14, um, did it intensively, did an A-level course, then studied it at university. And by then, my ambition was to get to the Soviet Union. In those days, it's hard to remember it, but it was really hard to get there. Private enterprise was banned in the communist Soviet Union. So you couldn't go and work for somebody unless you were a nanny to a Western diplomat, perhaps. And as a tourist, you could only go on very brief visits of three days or seven days, and you were followed everywhere or guided everywhere you went by interest guides. Um, and, and it was really very hard to go, but there were British Council scholarships available for a very, very few, and I was lucky enough to get one. And by the time I went there in the mid-1970s and spent a year there in the provinces, I was totally hooked. <laughs> and what was it that hooked you about the Soviet Union? Well, I think initially um, what hooked me was uh, Russian language and literature, actually. it was um, I love the language. It's, it's Indo-European, but it's, 
it's quite different from um, the grammar and the structure that we have. It, it's, it, it declines a lot. It's a bit like speaking Latin in that way. It has a very different way of dealing with um, action, verbs. And so you have to sort of slightly switch your mind. And that was already an intellectual challenge and very intriguing. Mm. And then once you got over the different alphabet and the different grammar and everything, there was this amazing literature. I mean, I don't need to tell everybody. Everybody knows Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Chekhov, Bulgakov and so on. So, uh, and, and when you speak the language, you then open up a whole new world of poetry, which is almost untranslatable. So that was what excited me first and foremost. Um, when I got there as a student, I then realized that that was Russia, but then there was also the Soviet Union, which is what um, Russia had been part of the Soviet Union since 1917, since the Bolshevik Revolution, the communists took over. And this was a whole political superstructure over it, which was a fascinating world. And it was a bit like suddenly finding yourself on Mars or on the moon. It was a different world. And because in those days, way before digital um, communications, um, it really was very cut off from the West. People there knew so little about our world, and I realised we didn't know that much about their world, and that completely came, that was really, really interesting, and I felt so privileged to be one of these few people who had access to it. And how, draw a contrast between Cambridge in the UK in the mid-70s and the Soviet Union in the mid-70s. What was it like to live okay. there, to survive there, to work there? So this is a provincial town called Varonish, in fact a city. I think a million inhabitants. It's about halfway between Moscow and the Black Sea. Industrial, in the middle of the Black Earth region, so very uh, rich um, agricultural soil all around, but deeply provincial, deeply conservative, if you like, and loyal. And I think one of the reasons that we were sent there, and there were about a dozen of us Brits, who, British undergraduates who were sent there, was because the authorities thought we wouldn't get into trouble, because there really were very few dissidents. I said this to a Russian friend just the other day, actually, we were having a bit of a reunion. She said, well, of course, there were dissidents. I said, yes, but they were private dissidents. Yeah. I mean, it, it, we could walk around the town. I'm sure the KGB didn't need to enlist very many people to look out for us because it was obvious who we were. We wore different clothes. Uh, we had different ways of speaking. We stuck out like a sore thumb. So in that way, I think we, they felt we were safer. And um, what we got was an insight into what life was really like. You know, away from Moscow, um, I mean, everyone talks about the queues and the shortages of the Soviet Union, but in provincial Soviet Russia at that time, it was unbelievable. I mean, there was no meat in the town, no meat. You couldn't go into a, the butcher's shop, didn't have any meat. It just had um, sausages and salami. Uh, and uh, you go to the market where those peasants could, could sell private things, and there might be a couple of scrawny chickens, but almost nothing. So we lived on a diet of um, tin fish and dairy products and um, eggs, and that was about it. And, you know, then, you know, everything else you could find in the shops. And even, even vegetables was a problem. I remember when I arrived in November, I arrived a little late. I was waiting for a visa. You go along to the vegetable shop, Orvishi, it's called the vegetables. Um, and there were potatoes and onions and garlic and um, beetroot and apples and cabbage. Um, so, okay, you can make a decent vegetable soup. Um, we went to Moscow for a little bit over Christmas, and when I came back and went along to the vegetable shop with my bag to go shopping in the end of January, there were potatoes, onions, garlic, and that was it. And that was it until May, when the fresh cucumbers and tomatoes 
were available. Be- why? Because they didn't import anything, certainly not to Voronezh from abroad. And um, Soviet production and agriculture was so disorganized, so dysfunctional, there really wasn't any way to conserve anything or refrigeration. Of fresh lettuce, dream on. Uh, and th- this was the way people lived. There was no coffee, there was no oranges. I remember one day saying to my Soviet roommates, I want to go to, I need to go to the um, big shop in the high street to, um, I need to get something to darn my woolen jumper. I've got a hole in it. And they said, what are you going to buy? I said, well, I'm looking for a needle and, you know, some wool. And they laughed, they hooted. They said, don't be so silly, you can't buy those in the shop. And I said, well, what do you do if you get a hole in your sweater? They said, well, we unravel an old one. So this was a world of um, the economy by now in the mid-1970s was, the Soviet economy was slowly grinding to a halt. Yes, there were the magnificent grain harvests that were talked about in the, in the official newspapers and um, the um, certain sectors of the economy connected with the military and defence and research were well provided for and the party, of course, which mm. had special shops and special places to live and access to going abroad. But for ordinary people, especially if you were out of Moscow or St. Petersburg, which was a bit of a showcase for foreign visitors, somewhere like Voronezh, life was grim. And, and that's before you get to things like medicines, really crucial things, or um, other things that we would think of, I mean, cleaning fluids. There was no cleaning fluid. Uh, this Russian friend I was talking to the other day, she said, I was so surprised when I came to the UK that you have plugs for your basins and you put hot and cold water in. We always just run very hot, uh, running hot water to wash things. And I said, yes, that's because you had no detergent. Mm. And we remembered that and smiled and laughed together. But it was an extraordinary place. And if you compare it coming from a place like Cambridge, this beautiful city with its medieval spires and parks and gardens um, and interesting little shops, antique shops and bookshops and what have you, cafes, you go to somewhere like Voronezh. The first few weeks I kept getting lost because I hadn't realised that going down the street you always orientate yourself by shop signs and things that are different. There was nothing, just grey monolithic uh, buildings with um, generic titles. So the f- vegetable shop was called Vegetable and the fruit shop was fr- Fruit, Frukti, and the meat shop was Miasa. And um, there was very little signposting that you get, we're now used to in a, in a market economy. And it felt, it really did feel as though I was on another planet. So they didn't window dress it to any extent for you? No, not but for they, us. They gave it to you as it was? Interestingly, they rightly um, surmised that no one would listen to students coming back from the Soviet Union. I used to wonder about that, because what we saw um, and and our access to ordinary Soviet people and the stories we heard were um, told a very different story from the story of the mighty Soviet threat. I had one friend during the year. He, um, I, I found a drama group. I was desperate to just speak Russian. I didn't want to to speak English, so I went off to find clubs of, of, of Russians and I joined a drama group and he was in the group. He wasn't a good student. He failed his exams and was kicked out and was sent off to the army. That's what you would happen to you if you were a Soviet um, young man. If you didn't go to university, you were sent to the army. So he was in the army in the Urals, but he used to come back and see us. And what he told us, I remember he, he would tell us about how um, his friends who were um, conscripts, they were all conscripts, uh, who were attached to the Air Force, they they didn't, the, 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 the um, chemicals they had to, the spirit they had to clean the engines, they didn't clean the engines, they just drank it. 
So number one, what's that doing to their insides? And number two, these, these machines were never serviced. So little details like that, you'd sort of think that the Soviet authorities wouldn't want us to know. But they were right. Nobody in Britain cared what we had to say. Um, the story of the mighty Soviet Union went on. And of course, there was another side to it. Um, we were on the underbelly. But there was the military-industrial complex, the defence research institutes, um, the, uh, you know, if you look at their record on their space programme, um, they had their own fibre optics. Um, where it mattered, they were able to pour money into that research. So it wasn't untrue that um, the Soviet Union was something to fear. It's just that when you came down to the nitty-gritty, there was an awful lot of corruption and bureaucracies and dysfunctionality at the same time. Then you joined the BBC and started to engage a little bit more with Russia on a professional or Soviet Union mm -hmm. professional level. How did that play out for you? Well, I joined in 1983, so I, I went back to Moscow for a year as a postgrad in 82, realising Brezhnev was very ill and was probably going to die. I mean, that was everybody realised that. Um, and I also thought there weren't that many jobs in academia in Russia. And I also thought it would be actually very interesting to be a journalist and watch this close up and not read about it in libraries later. Mm. But I was a bit conflicted because I realised as a student I'd had fantastic access. Um, especially that year in Moscow, I got to know loads and loads of people. And I would sometimes meet foreign correspondents and realise how constrained their lives were and how difficult it was for them to meet people. Ordinary Russians were scared to talk to foreign correspondents in case it got them into trouble. Um, so I, wonder, I thought it would be good to be a journalist, but I was also worried about what that would do if I were to come back and have to report on this place and would that put my friends in danger. So when I joined the BBC initially, I joined um, the World Service Current Affairs Department and I, I did lots of things without coming to Russia. Um, I reported on the Greek elections. I went to Berlin. Now that was a Cold War story. It was 1985 and it was the anniversary of um, D-Day. So what would that be? 40 years. And I was sent um, by my department to Berlin to make a documentary programme um, and to look for people who'd been there on June the 6th, 1945. And um, I wish now I'd kept their material because we've, I found the most amazing people. Um, uh, two or three who'd hidden in the latter days of the war, a little Jewish woman who'd been hidden by a German family, a bit like Anne Frank, and had lived in a cellar. And then she said, when they said, you can come out, the war's over, she came out and the whole, she said, the whole of Berlin was covered with tents and smoking fires and Soviet soldiers from Central Asia, all Asian looking, and she was terrified. So that was her particular memory of it. And another man, German, who'd been a member of the officer's plot, the officers who tried to assassinate Hitler, failed plot. So he'd have to go into hiding and he too had been hidden by friends for the whole of the war that came out on D-Day. Uh, and then we met someone who'd been in Hitler Youth. It's also interesting. So, and then as part of that assignment, I was told I also had to go to East Berlin. These people I interviewed in West Berlin. So I went across um, into East Berlin and did a couple of interviews. Of course, they were very official interviews. They weren't going to let me just talk to people off the street. They were stage managed by stage the state. Yeah. I was used to that from the Soviet Union. It's what you'd expect. But I mean, it's still interesting to see that. And most of all, it was interesting to be in East, East Berlin and see how it looked different. And I remember how it smelt different because the petrol was, I guess it was all unleaded and probably less, there were less um, 
That's all sulfur in it, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was very sort of sweet. I remember it from, from the Soviet Union. It's the same smell of something which was not filtered out, which in West Berlin was filtered out. And then, you know, the other usual things that are, were, were typical of the Soviet bloc, which is far fewer cars, because it's very, very hard to get a private car. More bicycles, lots of people walking, uh, lots of people carrying bags, because you always, in a deficit economy, had a bag just in case you saw something in a shop and could <laughs> rush in and join a queue. And people walking and not making eye contact because public space was a place where you kept yourself to yourself because who knows who you were talking to. And only at home did you open up. Yeah, this is jumping ahead now, but I remember when the Soviet Union ended, uh, by then I was Moscow correspondent, and um, the fear of the party and the KGB disappeared. It was very quick that people began to make eye contact on the street. So that's an interesting side to that. I think even now when you go to Berlin, if you go on the, the television tower, on the very kitsch revolving restaurant, and right. you look east, particularly at night, it still looks different to the west. It's the way darker. The street lays, slightly darker, the streets are laid out in a slightly more linear fashion. Yes. Well, that's to do with the old Berlin capital and where the capital was, I suppose. I mean, go to Moscow now, it's full of bright lights. I wonder the place where you, you first visited um, in the Soviet Union, I wonder, have you been back to there? Voronezh. I've been back a couple of times. I haven't been recently. There was a, a big celebration there last year. Sadly, I wasn't able to go. Um, my friends say it's very transformed. But I went back, I went back in, when I was in Moscow in 1982, and that was interesting, because um, by now the economy was even more dysfunctional. Um, my Moscow friends were telling me how how bad it was, how you had to queue for stuff and how things that had been available before weren't. I remember the food minister went on Soviet television in May to say there was a crisis in agriculture, which is unheard of. Everyone, isn't all we could, we could talk about for the, for, for the next week because the communist authorities never admitted that anything was wrong. Everything was going towards the shining heights of communism. And here was the food minister admitting there was a crisis. And I knew that because a few weeks before I'd been back in Voronezh to visit an old friend. Still snowy, it was April, snow on the streets. And um, my friends were telling me how terrible it was in the shops and that now even dairy products were not really available. And um, the traditional Russian fair for Easter is um, something called Pascha and Kalich. So it's a cake, a bit like a panettone, and a kind of cream with um, uh, um, uh, spike, um, crystallized fruits in it. Um, and these, the ingredients for this were not available. You need cottage cheese and eggs and various things. So everyone was very cross. And who was cross most of all? The old ladies who still went to church, because this is an orthodox tradition. And I remember walking down the main street, Prospect, Revolution Prospect, and as big, as usual, big black car going down the centre of the road, which is what the party officials used. And these two old ladies just went out onto the snowy street and stopped in front of the car and shook their fists so that the car had to break and then swerve around them and go on. I was just astonished. I mean, it's unbelievable that, that someone should demonstrate that sort of rebellious spirit in public because you could be whisked away and, and, and arrested. I mean, when I was there as a student, I remember there was an old lady who suddenly had the bright idea, why didn't she bake cakes and take them to sell to people waiting in the long bus line in the snowy winter? You know, because that would be nice for them to have a hot cake. Of course she was arrested because that was private entrepreneurship and it was banned. But now, roll on, what was it, five years later, here were these old ladies shaking their fists at party cars. So I knew there was a crisis. 
And of course, you know, that was one of the early signs um, which were to unravel towards the decision of the Politburo in 1985 to bring in Gorbachev, who famously said to his wife on the eve of taking the job, we can't go on living like this. And he realised things had to change, although, of course, he didn't realise it was all going to unravel quite so fast. But by now, 1985, so I'd become a BBC journalist for two years. When Gorbachev came, that was really a step change because he very quickly made it clear that it was not going to be business as usual and that people could speak out. Glassness was the other slogan besides perestroika, which means openness. And that meant a different deal for journalists because suddenly then it was, there was, the party was giving permission for ordinary people to express their views. And so I became a journalist at just the right time. Really. Was that a vehicle for him to hear dissent to help make the changes that he wanted to make that realised that he realised needed to be made? I've heard him talk about it since, and uh, one of the arguments often made is Gorbachev got it wrong. He shouldn't have um, relaxed political control um, before he'd got economic um, reforms in place. Because what you ended up with was a dissatisfied population who then protested and then the whole thing collapsed. Hmm. Whereas the, the way the Chinese did it, which is you had economic reforms, but a lot of political control, I mean, it's still a communist party controlled country, had it the right way around because you kept the lid on. Um, when this argument was made to him subsequently, Gorbachev would say, well, no, you have to understand this is Russia. You know, I know Russians and Russians need to speak out. They needed to feel liberated in order to feel that they were part of this. And I think, I think, I mean, I understand what he means because I think it would be very easy for them just to see it as a whole lot of, of new party slogans. I mean, to begin with, people did. They just thought, oh, this is the party. You know, it's window dressing for us. It's window dressing for the West to try and improve relations because they're worried about the arms race. But it, they don't really want to change things properly. And actually, to, to a certain extent, to begin with, he probably didn't want to have root and form change. You know, he was general secretary of the Communist Party. Um, to be, remain in control and be able to order things, he had to remain supreme leader. And in fact, as reforms became more radical, pushed partly from below, um, he was sawing off the branch he was sitting on, which was the reason why, in the end, he had to leave. I think uh, he wanted to galvanise the intelligentsia behind him as the sort of thinking people of Russia um, who'd been waiting for reform. There'd been an attempt at reform in the 60s which was crushed when Khrushchev was ousted and Brezhnev and his, um, uh, his allies came in. And he wanted to reactivate them. And, and you know, Gorbachev's an intellectual. These were his people. So um, he had a lot of links with um, playwrights, with um, newspaper and journal editors, um, with um, academics, and they were encouraged to push the boundaries. Uh, and um, uh, people were very excited about what was appearing in the press. And I think also one of his, his, his um, allies, his, his close advisors, Alexander Yakovlev, who was in charge of ideology for the Politburo, um, always understood that unless you are open, unless you um, open up to your own history and to what's wrong, you can't cure yourself. He, was, he championed um, Memorial, which is this group which was set up to look into the 
people who'd been repressed under Stalin, something that had always been put under the carpet. Of course, now you could argue it's been put under the carpet again. Um, but, but there was this big push to try and both, yes, to get, to get enthusiasm, I think, behind reforms, to make people feel it was real. I mean, other things were happening that weren't just about words on the page. He was releasing all the political prisoners. Zakharov was returned from exile. Within a couple of years, he was an MP. Um, other, pe- other, other political prisoners who were big news in the West were released. Some were allowed to go to the West if they wanted. Others just got their freedom back. The poet Irina Zarashushinskaya, she was a big deal at the Reykjavik summit of 1986. Um, her case was brought up. Um, but I don't think that Gorbachev was just doing this to um, offer a sugar pill to the West. I think this was part of a much bigger uh, enterprise to galvanize people behind him. And later, he would talk about how he needed to have the Russian people on his side so that he was more powerful in arguing against his critics in the Politburo. But it's always difficult when you hear these people talk in hindsight leaders who last a very long time into retirement, how much they're telling you what they've thought subsequently, or is it really what they thought at the time? But probably there was something in that, that if you have grassroots support from below, then if you can harness it, then it makes you very powerful against people who might try to block what you're doing. What you could say happened in his case is that the enthusiasm from below took over and had its own momentum, particularly when it came to the Soviet republics where the lid had been kept very tightly on places like Ukraine, Baltics, and uh, he couldn't stop them wanting to go the way of Eastern Europe and breaking free. You mentioned that you reported from some of the big summits. Yeah. Were you aware then of how the arc of history was changing and these were um, precursors to perhaps the end of the, of the Cold War, or was it not so obvious at the time? Um, you have to remember that to begin with, we were all super sceptical. I mean, I was sceptical, my colleagues were, so were the Soviet people, um, because this, the communist leadership in the Soviet Union had a long history of peddling propaganda and outright lies, saying things were true when they absolutely were not. And so um, it was always difficult to know when things were being said. You know. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Were they just talking the talk? Were they going to walk the walk? I remember in... Um, so, you know, the first summit, 1985, I wasn't there in Geneva, Geneva, end of 1985, when Reagan met Gorbachev. And they had a walk in the woods and they got on relatively well, it broke the ice, nothing was decided. They met again in Reykjavik at the end of 86, and again nothing was decided. But it somehow moved things forward, and then just a month or so afterwards, um, these political prisoners, dissidents, were 
released and you began to think, well, hang on, something's actually happening here. Um, and then th- things moved quite quickly. Um, 1987, I think it was, I might have my years mixed up, 87 or 88, Re- Re- Reagan came to Moscow and I remember being there for that. And um, I was reporting for BBC World Service and I thought, well, the most useful thing I can do is to, to, I'm not going to get to the top people. I'm not going to get an interview with Gorbachev or Shevardnadze, the foreign minister. But I'll, I'll put in bids for the deputy foreign ministers, most of whom were English-speaking, were a career of diplomats. And I remember doing one with um, the uh, deputy foreign minister with the responsibility for Asia, who said to me, we're going to pull out of Afghanistan. And I thought, yeah, you know, propaganda. You know, and I reported it, and, you know, it went out on the headline on the BBC World Service. But I didn't think, wow, this is it, because I didn't know whether to believe him or not. So, you know, it's a slow process of year by year, and you start saying, wait a minute. And then I remember coming back from that visit, um, not so much stunned by the pronouncements of the Deputy Foreign Minister on Afghanistan, but more by the rumours I heard from my friends that Gorbachev was going to call a special party conference to discuss political reform and the party's ruling monopoly on power. And I was... I just thought that's extraordinary that they're even going to discuss it. And I remember going back to London and saying to my editor, you know, Reagan's visit was interesting, but I tell you, the most interesting thing happened at this <laughs> conference. And he said, OK, go straight back. So I did. And, and um, in fact, we were um, we got I got through my contacts. We got um, permission to re- broadcast from inside Radio Moscow, um, which was good in one way, because this is way before, you know, ISDNs or mm. iPhones or anything like that. It was always a nightmare to broadcast. It meant we could get a circuit straight to London, and I wanted to broadcast several times a day. But also, by some, I don't know, mistake? Who knows what? We got a live feed of the conference. All in Russian, of course. But, you know, there would be um, Yeltsin standing up and saying, no, maybe, I don't know if Yeltsin's still around. But anyway, reformers standing up and talking about the need to move the party, for the party to share power and leading conservatives saying we can't do this and I was listening to all of it it's absolutely astonishing and then would report it back to London so um, it was about that time I began to think the story of the Soviet Union now is about what happens internally it's this battle between the reformers and the hardliners with Gorbachev sitting in the middle manoeuvring and actually it's not entirely sure how far he wanted it to go but insofar as he even allowed this battle to happen that meant he probably wanted reform and then a year I guess that was 88 because the year later in 89 he brought in this new parliament it was called the Congress of People's Deputies and people were elected from all over the country and and, and including the republics who all sent very, uh, a lot of them sent quite outspoken radical people, lots of intellectuals, Sakharov was an MP, and they suddenly had a platform to stand up and challenge the party. The party already all had a certain number of reserved seats because they didn't really want to kind of stand up and be counted, but all these people were dying to say what they thought. And um, uh, Gorbachev arranged for it to be broadcast all day and every day on television. And I remember going, I can't remember where in the provinces, in some hotel, and on every floor there'd be the old ladies who was, the dejourne, the ladies who would sort of keep an eye on you. They used to keep an eye on people coming in and out, but they were there to sort of just basically have a job in their old age. And they were all clustered around the television, watching the proceedings with open mouth. 
you know, and that that's partly what brought the country rolling forward to um, the eventual demise which happened two years later, helped along, of course, by what happened in Eastern Europe. And do you think that is what Gorbachev wanted? Was he confident enough to let the internal dynamic drive it, or was it actually an unintended consequence of... I, th- I think he wanted reform. He felt that the, the, um, the system didn't work. He was worried about reforming the economy because he was afraid that if you got rid of the centrally planned economy and subsidised prices and allowed prices to float free, there'd be riots because people wouldn't be used to it and wouldn't. So he held back on economic reform for that reason so long that um, the shop's shelves were empty anyway. Mm. So he didn't win on that one. And people like Yeltsin were saying, no, 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 we need radical shock therapy to sort this out. And of course, when he came in, that's what happened after 91. Um, But on the political front, I think he felt that the Communist Party was becoming a force not for reform, but for holding back reform. And so there had to be, I mean, I think his original idea was it should regenerate itself. That's certainly the message that was given to communist parties in different East European countries. I was there in Poland in um, June of 1989 when they had their first half-free elections. There was a round table with Solidarity, which had been banned, and it was agreed they'd have elections, there'd be a certain number of seats reserved for communists, same kind of deal as what happened in in the Soviet Union, and um, others would be, you know, seats which people like Solidarity representatives could um, apply for. I remember um, being in the Moscow, uh, in the in the Warsaw BBC office and one of my colleagues from Newsnight came in from filming in the villages and he said, it's fascinating what's happening out there. We're asking people how they voted. It was election day. He said, all these old ladies with their, you know, with their spectacles on, they said, I just looked to see who the communists were and I put a line through all of them. So what happened was that the communists got voted out. They weren't given a chance to be, you know, reformists. So, um, um, so uh, antagonistic were people towards the Communist Party because in all these countries, particularly in the Soviet Union, they had had their own elite private world, which people were angry about. So Gorbachev was part of that elite, but he didn't understand, I think, quite how... You know, the kind of people I've been living among in Voronezh in the mid-1970s, how very, uh, how very frustrated they were with their life and how angry they were with the party for being, you know, it's like George Orwell's animal farm, some pigs are more equal than others. So, um, so I think he, that must, that was a bit of a blind spot, if you like, because he certainly wanted parties to reform. And this is what the East German um, communist leadership, Honecker and Krentz, and there's visits, Gorbachev's visit to Berlin in in the autumn of 89. I was there when he went to the 40th anniversary of the the GDR. Um, He stood on a platform next to Honecker and Honecker said, we'll be here another 40 years. They only lasted a few more weeks. But um, the message that we understand that Gorbachev gave was, you know, you have, it's up to you, you have to reform. Of course, the East German communist leadership was very resistant and they didn't last. Is that because they were not prepared to give up their position of privilege or was it? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, you know, they would say, and actually, you know, now in, um, in Russia, I, I, would, I would say 
you know, what I understand from, from people who probably should know these things is that uh, Vladimir Putin and Dmitry Medvedev thought Gorbachev was an idiot. He was an idiot to think that he could lift the lid off and um, just a little bit and reform it a bit and carry on. It was never going to work. Once the genie's out, the genie's out. So, and then when did you go back to Moscow full-time? Uh, as a correspondent? Yes. I went in July 1989. The um, BBC, I was going there a lot and doing these, all these reports, and the BBC um, decided it needed to expand its bureau because the news was just every day there were so many different things happening. And they knew I spoke Russian, uh, so they asked me to apply for the job and um, gave it to me. I thought um, that almost the next thing that happened was that the, the correspondent I was supposed to go to work with was thrown out as an alleged spy. There was a big tit-for-tat expulsion. People forget that now. They think there's just a single arc of you know, relations getting better. But actually in 89, these things are bumpy. And in 89, there was this big expulsion of diplomats and journalists by Gorbachev and Shevardnadze. It was in response to, um, I think it was in response to the information that Oleg Gordievsky, the double agent working for Britain, who had been the number one uh, resident in the Soviet embassy in London, uh, and then they managed to, and then gone back to Russia, but the um, British intelligence services managed to smuggle him out, and he'd given them a lot of information on who was working for these security services in London. So there'd been a British, a big British expulsion of Soviets, so I think this was the tit for tat to match it. But it meant that when I went to Moscow, uh, I went uh, to, I had to run the bureau on my own instead of being with someone else because he'd gone. But you know, obviously it felt very much the Cold War. And so, you know, you think, oh, by July 1989, things were getting better. Well, they were. There was this new parliament, which was being broadcast on television with all the cleaning ladies and Dijordan watching it. Uh, and, 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 you know, a platform for dissidents and nationalists and what have you. But then on the other hand, they kicked out all these Brits. And, um, you know, we, we still felt, I still felt we were very much foreigners, you know, the capitalists. Um, correspondent brigade in a world which is still very Soviet. And I remember thinking when I went out there that perhaps I was also aware that the conservatives um, high up in the Politburo and their, and their um, supporters were beginning to speak out against reforms. And so we could see this battle beginning to happen. And I was very worried that when I went as a correspondent, what I would find myself reporting on was the slow end of reforms and a return to the status quo. This is, after all, what happened in the 1960s when Khrushchev was ousted. And to begin with, people thought, well, maybe it won't be so bad when Brezhnev comes in. But actually, if you look back at what happened after Khrushchev went and the show trials of dissidents and then, you know, the battle with Solzhenitsyn in the end kicked out, things got much worse internally, but probably in relation to the West. And I thought that that might happen again and that Gorbachev might not last and that the Communist Party, which had been all-powerful for 70 years, would regroup and spit out this reformer. And what I would have to try and explain to the West, who were very excited about arms control summits and, you know, dissidents being released and so on, was that that was then, but things are getting worse again. And of course, that might have been the case if the coup, which happened in 1991, had succeeded 
you know, there could have been a reversion. And after all, in recent years, we have seen a period of liberalization in Russia be followed by a period of retrenchment. So I don't think I was wrong to think that. It just turned out that I was, as it turned out, completely incorrect. And that's not what happened at all. But it's interesting when you think about it. And there were things about my daily life that reinforced that view. So at the apartment block where we lived, all foreigners, all Westerners, a policeman on the door would take the passport of any Russian who wanted to come in and speak to us. So on the whole, they didn't. They were worried about what would happen to them or what happened to their passport. Um, but I would get calls from people who'd say, um, they'd managed to make, get a call through to the Moscow office, say, I'd like to come meet you and talk about something. Will you meet me in a local park? I remember a miner from, coal miner from one of the northern coal fields in Vodkata wanted to come and tell me about the strike they were planning, a devastating strike as it happened, certainly politically, the proletariat uh, rising up against the Communist Party that's supposed to protect the proletariat. But he was not going to come anywhere near the bureau because of the KGB. So we walked in a circle around a local park, and that happened a lot. And I remember another um, weekend, I haven't been there very long, thinking, oh, it would be nice to go out for a walk in the forest outside Moscow one Sunday afternoon, driving out in my correspondent car with the correspondent plates, and you get stopped at the ring road, policeman waves you over, he says, you're a foreigner. You're a foreign correspondent, I can tell by your plate, go back to Moscow. Why can't we go for a walk in the park? in the forest, because you're not allowed beyond, beyond the city perimeter. It's a new rule. So, you know, little things like that would make you think, well, maybe the tide is turning. But actually, it was just a period of, you know, who knows where that rule came from. Maybe that came from some conservative member of the Politburo without Gorbachev knowing. Um, there were lots of other little incidents that cracked down on protests. Um, made you think, hmm... That's quite hard to imagine now when we look back at the broader arc of what we know happened yeah. with the science of hindsight to think that Gorbachev might have been a Khrushchev part too. That's well, you know, lots of things that, that, that he might have, yes. That, well, I mean, in the end, he was, of course, in a way, ousted by Yeltsin, but that was not the communists. The communists were banned for, for quite a long time. But... Um, I think what's the other thing you have to remember is that we, even though all these things were happening, it was quite hard to know where Gorbachev was in all of this, because he was being very careful in his public statements not to align himself too closely with the reformers. And as they became more radical, he probably wasn't fully aligned with them. So at the beginning of 1991, there was this um, attack on Vilnius, um, part, well, so to backtrack a bit, after 1989 and the, and the collapse of the Berlin Wall and one by one the Eastern European countries um, basically uh, freed themselves of communism and said they wanted to um, end the Warsaw Pact, it was pretty clear Eastern Europe had gone free and you know lots of people in the West think the end of communism was 1989. Not so in the Soviet Union, the Communist Party was still there. And to come back to one of your earlier questions, Gorbachev's red line was okay, well, if the Germany wants to do that, or Hungary, or Poland, that's fine. They're, they are autonomous countries, and there is no longer a Brezhnev doctrine, and we're not going to invade like we did in 1968. But when it comes to the Soviet Union, that's a different matter. Constituent republics cannot secede unilaterally. So he began to have a big argument with the Baltics, who were all saying, but we became part of the Soviet Union against our will as part of the Second World War, or after it. And we want to leave now. And if East Germany can, or Poland next door, why can't we? And he went there and argued with them. And of course, what he was worried about, 
quite rightly as it turned out, was that if the Baltics went free, well, it would be Ukraine next and Georgia. And then the Central Asian republics, who'd love to keep the proceeds of their oil and cotton receipts and not send them um, to Moscow to be redistributed by the central authorities. So uh, he was worried about a bigger collapse and also how his opponents of reform in Moscow would react and maybe they would lose patience with him. So um, at the beginning of 91, there was a famous attack overnight on um, the Vilnius parliament. It was a classic operation by local, the local Soviet garrisons to surround um, the parliament and seize it and also seize radio and TV. It's interesting now, isn't it? Because nowadays seizing radio and TV wouldn't have any meaning. You just go on social media. Exactly. Yeah. But in those days, that was still meaningful. They didn't manage because um, the Ukrainians came out, in, um, Lithuanians came out in force and there were also some Western journalists there. And um, I think 17 people were killed, um, but it, it didn't last. Um, but it did raise a question mark in all our minds. I was in Moscow at the time. You know, did Gorbachev order this? In which case, is he really a reformer? If he's, you know, cracking down like that? in a kind of 1968-style way. There were tanks then. Mm. Or did he not know? In which case, is he so weak that we have something else to worry about? And in response to that, he, um, he's talked about in, in interviews and in his autobiography, he got in touch with the um, American ambassador, Jack Matlock, to send a message to George H. Bush to say, I'm going to have to zigzag. Just stay with me. Trust me. But I'm going to have to zigzag. By then, Shevardnadze had resigned, um, and uh, foreign minister saying there's a creeping dictatorship coming. And Gorbachev had um, brought in a new government, which was, uh, well, you only had to look at them, and you can see they're a pretty unsavory lot. And many of those were the people who then staged a coup against him later that year. So we had a lot of reasons as correspondents to think, just whose side is Gorbachev on? Was he now so weak that actually he's no longer a reformer? You know, endless questions all the time. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't a clear narrative at all. And and when you look back at the the the, the Cold War now, you know, several years after, perhaps it, it it ended. How should we remember uh, a war which perhaps never happened? Is your book one answer to this? How do we how do we do that? Well, I wonder if that's right to say it never happened because um, there wasn't the nuclear confrontation between the United States and the Soviet Union. You know, those ninety percent of the world's nuclear weapons that they both hold were not used in anger against each other. That is true. But when they and this this certainly came home to me um, in compiling the radio series and then the book and looking at episode by episode, that uh, I think probably after the Cuban Missile Crisis, when they realised how dangerous it was, but certainly through the 60s, there was a recognition that these, these weapons were too dangerous to use. And there was a kind of agreement that you have to live with each other. I mean, it was manifested, for example, in Ostpolitik, the agreement between the leaders of East and West Germany to sort of live with each other and accept that both Germanys were going to be there. You know, Germany, mm. I think, you know, I certainly felt that um, working on this project, Germany is the fulcrum. Germany is where it began. And actually, Germany is sort of where it ended, if you like, yes. when the Berlin Wall came down. Um, so whatever happened between the two Germanys was always a very significant indicator of the bigger relations. 
Um, but I think also if you look um, at uh, what happened after the high point of the Cold War, if you like, the Cuban Missile Crisis, what happened is that the, the, the conflict dissipated into proxy wars and regional conflicts. So there was the Vietnam War. Um, there was the attack on Allende in Chile, first socialist president in Latin America. Um, there was Angola, which kicked off in the mid-1970s. I mean, millions and millions of people died in that war. And then, of course, there was Afghanistan, starting from 79. Um, the consequences of which are still with us. So I think to say it never happened, perhaps that's not the right way to put it when you think of all the lives lost and um, the damage that was done in different places around the world. You know, Latin America, the the, um, the wars in El Salvador and Nicaragua, people don't talk about them now, but these were devastating wars for many people. And they were the result, if you like, of the nuclear capitals, Washington and Moscow, deciding mad, mutually assured destruction was a doctrine they both actually signed up to, and therefore that they weren't going to unleash weapons on each other. So instead, they were going to kill through proxies. I certainly think that's one part that comes through very well in the book, is understanding the broader perspectives of the Cold War. Yes, we know about mad, the macro blocks, but the bloody war is a proxy around the globe, and I think that the first-hand accounts that come out from that really mm. Do, mm. do bring it to life. Just Ask one question about the the Cuban Missile Crisis. You said that was the peak of risk in the Cold War. Was but then again in 1983 with Abel Archer and arguably yeah. at least with the Cuban Missile Crisis, they knew what was happening. It was only perhaps ex post that they realised what had happened with the miscommunication that went around uh, Abel, Archer. Abel Archer. Well, I mean, there are two things there. There's Abel Archer and there's the shooting down of the Korean airliner, which was probably publicly made a bit more impact. Um, I remember being in the... I just joined the BBC when the Korean airliner was shot down. So this was a South Korean airliner that strayed into Soviet space and a Soviet pilot shot it down. How many people killed? Over 200, I can't remember. Um, I remember saying to um, my colleagues at the BBC, you know, I bet this was just young, some young Soviet pilot following the rules or being told by his... You know, I bet this wasn't... An, I, I bet this wasn't actually an attempt to start World War Three. I think this is just, you know... A rogue pilot. Not exactly a rogue pilot, but just, you know, if you think about, you know, the, the adherence to rules and bureaucracy, and if you're in that kind of um, society, you know, you think you'd be in terrible trouble if you don't do what you're supposed to do. And you're probably not that good about thinking about the bigger picture. I mean, actually, there are reports of submarine um, commanders in um, the Cuban Missile Crisis, who did take very important decisions not to push that over the limit. But I, I kind of think the Korean airliner was a sort of mishap. And I think quite quickly that um, both sides knew that, that it wasn't, you know, this wasn't an intentional shooting down, it was an accident. And they stepped back. Um, Abel Archer, there's some quite interesting articles being written about this, raising the question of whether... Um, whether in fact um, the Soviet interpretation of the military exercise, uh, which was an exercise um, partly uh, uh, walking through 
what might happen if you're going towards nuclear war, that this was the real thing and that they put their systems on alert and so on. The backstory to this is partly that Andropov had said, we need to be alert to the West and we're afraid that they really are preparing for war. And again, if you understand Soviet society and the way people felt that they had to give their superiors what they wanted, it's completely possible that some of the reporting was that it, it looks as though this, this this could be moving towards war by people who didn't actually quite believe it, but were saying it because that's what maybe they thought they say. expected to say. So it's quite complicated. Um, but I think that, you know, it, it is quite interesting that if you look at... Um, uh, uh, I mean, I, I don't know, I, I was there at the time. I can't say that I felt we were about to go to a nuclear war. It didn't feel like that. It's more Reagan had ramped up the arms race. Andropov was quite harsh. But it, I suppose it felt more like today, you know, where, where relations are bad. But I don't think we think that um, the West and... Putin's Russia want to go to war with each other. There's always a worry about doing something by accident. That's always there, but then that's there anyway. Whereas I think with the Cuban Missile Crisis, it was quite early in the nuclear age. And it was the first time people thought really hard and, you know, re- really hard about these things and thought through the consequences. So one of the um, eyewitness reports we had from then was of a man who was in Brooklyn. Uh, at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he was a boy, a small boy, and his mother was watching developments on the radio, maybe television, and one afternoon she called them all into the kitchen, her children, and said, listen children, I just want you to know I love you, because we may all die this afternoon. Well, I can't think of anything subsequent to that, moments of high tension, where it's got to that point. So I think I'd still stick to the Cuban Missile Crisis being the high point. Interesting. Although um, I think one point that comes out in either the the radio program or the the book is that actually when you look at the proximity of Alaska to the Soviet Union, that of course is a lot closer than Cuba ever was. But it was something that perhaps was an arrival of missiles and the change of the status quo that caused uh, the states to become uncertain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I mean, uh, we live with it today, don't we? Soviet pre- the Russian president says, I, we're going to put missiles in Kaliningrad or we're going to put them in Crimea. And we think, yeah, OK, that's, you know, that's upping the ante. But we don't think anymore that nuclear wars are on the corner. No. We're so worried about other sorts of wars, I suppose. <laughs> well, I mean, I remember on, on the BBC when uh, the doomsday scientists would move the doomsday clock one minute closer to midnight. And... As a child of the 70s, I watched Threads and I was sure at some point, you know, it felt like the world was going to come yeah. to an end. Yeah. Um, I guess it didn't. But your, your book, let's just turn to your, your book, A New All History um, of, of the Cold War. Um, I, if I just read a little bit about what it says, so it's against a backdrop of a global ideological conflict. This book chronicles the impact felt by ordinary citizens, many of whom found themselves in the ringside seats or pivotal roles as key episodes unfolded. These are the unsung foot soldiers of the Cold War. So why did you choose to look at an ideological conflict from a human point of view? I think um, I, it started as a radio series. 
Uh, and then we got such fabulous material, we thought we have to make a book out of it. Um, and I think we thought that it would be fresher, you know, that, that we'd, we'd heard a lot from the diplomats and the generals and the, you know, uh, reminiscences of the people in charge. Uh, and we wanted to hear about the people on the ground. And, you know, when you look through the decades, what are we talking about? Four decades. Um, there, there are lots of personal stories and lots of moments. You know, you say this is a war that never happened, but there were lots of moments of drama and crisis, which you can actually say in this place at this moment, wow, what was it like? You know, Hungary, revolution of 1956, the Berlin um, air blockade at the end of the 40s, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Very real. You know, that, that anybody who was there at the time, it's worth hearing their story. So um, we just wanted to make it feel, fr- uh, yeah, just real. And also, you know, there are, there are, I suppose, focusing on the victims does bring home the fact that this was not a war without consequences. There were terrible consequences. One of the most um, heart-rending um, chapters, episodes, was the one we did on the Korean War, and we decided just to focus on the refugees. And I remember my producer, um, who uh, we, the, most of the interviews were in Korean. We got uh, our, uh, a collaborator in Korea to interview the people. You know, we sent questions, and then got it translated. And I remember my producer uh, ringing me up and saying, "I've just been working through the transcripts, and I can't stop crying. It's so awful." You know, these people who were, you know, first it was. The war went one way, and then the Chinese got involved, and they went another way, and all these people fleeing North Korea, and families on the road. I remember there was an American soldier we interviewed who was there who said, you know, it was just biblical, just this stream of people. And then the eyewitness we got of people who, you know, you let my father let go of my hand, and I went on towards the south. I never saw him again. Or someone who'd left their mother behind in the north because she was going to stay with the smaller children. And now she's in North Korea and she died a few years ago and you never saw her again. Just devastating stories. So that felt to us much more compelling and important in a way than to hear what the, you know, American ambassador was thinking in Seoul. And I think that that was, for me, listening and, and reading was, I was struck by the parallels between the world today and the period covered in, in the book. I thought about the, the Vietnamese boat people Yes. And the people crossing the Mediterranean today. Yes, that's right. You talk about the refugees. We talk about interference in elections in Italy and Czechoslovakia yes. and perhaps in the West now. And yes. Let's not speculate. But that this you know, history from the Cold War really echoes into the, into the yeah. current period. Yeah, it's true. And also one side echoed the other. So um, on the Vietnam War, we thought, well, we'll tell the story through American vets. Um, and that was very powerful, you know, these young boys, idealistic boys who went out there thinking they're going to help the South Vietnamese. And then they turn up and find they're the people shooting at them. And then after a while, after you've been there a bit, you know, you just trying to stay alive and you start to hate them and you do unspeakable things to them or you see people do unspeakable things to them. No wonder so many of them came home a wreck. But then when we came on to do the uh, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which is quite complex, they actually didn't want to go in. 
they were asked and refused and then subsequently they agreed to go in and then it's blossomed into this war well you know that has resonances for today as well with NATO's involvement there but what was interesting was we again decided to tell it from the story of Soviet vets and they interestingly too so many of them thought that they were going to help the Vietnamese the uh, Afghans and you know the, com- the, 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 the socialist the communist side was the side for literacy and liberating women and education against the dark ages and the sort of religious mullahs who just wanted to keep people oppressed. It seemed very clear to them that they were on the side of the right. And then when they got there, of course, they found they were under attack from everyone and that they're inside, you know, unspeakable things happening. And what was worse for them was that they found that if they wanted to report that back, either they weren't allowed to or no one would listen. And again, when they came home, you know, I remember when I was correspondent there, you'd see Vietnam vets begging in the underground, um, sometimes limbless, because they came home and there wasn't the support for them uh, in, you know, collapsing Soviet Union. There's no room for prostheses. But it was, a, you know, the huge parallels between the two superpowers sending their young men off to wars in distant places. I remember um, I used to row and my rowing coach took us to Henley one year and he said he remembered in the late 60s and early 70s when the American colleges, who are big contributors to those kind of reactors, just didn't turn up. Right. They yeah. didn't have the young men to yeah. send. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, yeah. when you hear it at that level, it's, it's, you know, and the parallels you draw between Afghanistan and Vietnam, it's, it's shocking. I mean, we did try to do some um, episodes and chapters which were less known stories. Partly it was to have a proper spread. So we wanted to do something from the Middle East. So we did the assassination of the Iranian Prime Minister in 1953. But it was also because um, we wanted to um, throw light on important things that aren't normally thrown light on. So the Angolan War was one. But another was uh, a second uh, look at the Vietnam War and it was the consequences after what happened in Cambodia and how that was linked to the coming of Pol Pot and the complicated uh, relationships in that part of the world between Soviet proxies and Chinese proxies and the Americans. So we wanted to give some sense of follow through, but also how very complicated it was. Um, You know, you think of George Orwell's 1984, you know, three great powers and they keep shifting sides who's allied to who. It's not straightforward. It wasn't just us and them. There was a third party in the room, and that was China, and all that shifted. Which one of the stories in the books best encapsulates the contradictions, conflicts, and chaos of the of the Cold War? Well, I mean, arguably, maybe the second one. I mean, well, what can I say? I don't know. That's a hard one. I mean, the Korean program, because it's about these refugees, this sense of how people's lives are just swept aside, and um, that's a very simple story in a way. It's a story of all refugees. Um, the second Vietnam one, which is about Cambodia, uh, and what happened after, after the helicopter took off from mm. the roof, m- maybe that's quite a good one for understanding how complicated it was. And how parties shifted and different people got caught up in different ways. Um, so I don't know. I found it very interesting to read in the end 
as the Second World War was ending, how enemies became friends yeah, against this is the, the Greek greater story. enemy. The Greek so one, here yes. you are, end of 1944, the World War II is not over yet. But most of Greece has been liberated and Athens is liberated last of all. And the Brits decide they, um, well, they, you know, they've helped have the king in exile and they want to bring the monarchists back. But their allies, the Communist partisans, are horrified. And within months, they're on opposite sides of the barricades in a really bloody war mm. um, with air power and um, a lot of devastation. And, and, you know, people are still marching towards Berlin. Uh, D-Day is still to come. It's extraordinary. And it struck me also that you take that, the friends become enemies and, and vice versa. When you look at the, the Taliban in Afghanistan, yeah. you know, there's a James Bond film where they're the heroes supported by the Americans with the Sting missiles. You know, not many years later, the, the coin is, is flipped and yeah. the other happens. And yeah. those, the, that part of history always fascinates me. Yeah. As, you know, how you can talk and then not talk or vice versa. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, just as we close, just some some questions of you know you're in your nuclear bunker, civilizations mm. collapsing outside. Uh, you haven't had enough of the Cold War. Which piece of Cold War fiction would you take in with you? Okay, so I had uh, not one answer to this, but several. So I mean, I think um, John Le Carre's books, mm. Smiley's People. Uh, they're the Cold War par excellence, aren't they? Because that's the, you know, the the spy war is very much part of the Cold War. Um, so any of his smiley books, or all of them. <laughs> um, but I also wonder, uh, from the Russian side, I, uh, it's it's about the Battle of Stalingrad, but it was written in the Soviet period. So I think it reflects... It's a, it's a it's a contemplation on what life is like under totalitarianism, and that is Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate, which you've not if you've not read it, you really must. I have. It's a, it's a very thick book, isn't it? Yeah. But it's, it, he was he a journalist for he the was Soviet? a journalist, yes, yeah. for the Red Star. Yeah. So uh, he he um, in fact I yeah it, it it wasn't published in the Soviet Union. Um, it was too devastating because it talks about. Um, not just the army, but the political officers and mm. um, the brutality of the system that the drove system, people forward. Yeah, and people, you know, the the, the prison system and the and, and the Germans, I too. And then the other one, which I think is at the other end of the spectrum, at the end, I I really like Svetlana Alexeyevich's books. She won the Nobel Prize for Literature three years ago, four years ago, and um, she was a Soviet journalist in the eighties from Belarus. And after a while, she began to think that um, what Soviet journalism or the Soviet narrative of big big events that traumatized people um, said was always really a lie because it was heroic and it all joined up. And it was a, so the story of the Second World War was always a heroic battle which the Soviet Union won. Whereas she remembered the stories that her mother and aunts and grandmothers used to tell her in the villages in Belarus and how messy it was and uh, you know, families were divided and ordinary life was disrupted. So she went around um, interviewing mostly women, all women actually to get their stories of basically what happened in Belarus as the Germans swept through and then the Soviets swept back and um, 
put it together. She, 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 she takes bits of interview and puts them together in little collages. So sometimes she says who's speaking, sometimes she doesn't. So it's almost like a narrative poem. But it's got such integrity. And she's done that with, it's called The Unwomanly Face of War. That's about the Second World War. Um, she's done it with Chernobyl, with um, the view from the ground of Chernobyl. The Chernobyl nuclear disaster, not what the scientists thought and the journalists from Kiev and the experts who came from the West and so on, but the ordinary villagers, what it felt like to have this done to you and suddenly you're being told to get onto buses and leave or, you know, you're worrying about your health. And so on. She's done it with the Afghan war. So she has a, a her, her book were about the Afghan boys, but also the mothers who followed them to Afghanistan to try and bring them home. Mm. And her most recent, well, uh, I don't know if it's any longer her most recent one, but another recent one, it's called Secondhand Time. And it's about ordinary um, Russians and Belarusians experience of the end of the Soviet Union. And so on the one hand, there are some people who are jubilant and they think it's all going to be wonderful. And then there are others who are dismayed. Maybe they work for the party. The world collapses around them. They're suddenly, they were important officials. Now they're pensioners. And then she also, so she talks to them about what their view was when it was happening. And then she asks them what they feel now. And sometimes, you know, the woman who was so jubilant now says, oh, it's all gone wrong. Mm. Whereas the other woman has said, well, you know, maybe it's good the Communist Party went. But again, it's this collage effect. I recommend them all. They are a very different type of oral history, uh, somewhere on the margin between documentary evidence and fiction. She says she would call it fiction, but it's something, it's not just fiction. So um, people who like your podcast might like those. We will certainly put those on, on the show notes. I was wondering if you've seen the film From Us to Me. No. Which okay. is a film shot in Rostock. Uh-huh. Female shipyard workers, crane operators, right. and then a fishing business. Mm. And the film crew went out, I think, in the mid-80s, recorded these people driving these amazing cranes. The life, you know, there was the person who was most in favour of the party, there was those person who was least. And then that same film crew went back more recently. Oh, right. And looked at how they yeah, changed. Yeah. And it was very interesting, just as you say, that some felt it was the best thing in the end. Some people felt it was the worst. A lot of people couldn't deal with the uncertainty. You know, it was what was most interesting to me is the woman who'd been a very much a, a, a party person beforehand then became the, the arch-capitalist. Yeah. And the other side, it's a very successful travel agency business. And I just, I, and I could sense that that sudden loss of a state, that that disappearance of a world, for all of them, was very, very difficult. And it's a, that's a very good film. Yeah, so... I, I remember I was very struck by the um, chapter on um, the fall of the Berlin Wall. We decided we wouldn't do the fall of the Berlin Wall. Lots of people have done that. Instead, we talked to former East Germans about their reaction to it. And there was, again, this sense of jubilation. There's one woman who she was a kind of radio DJ, and suddenly she could play all these songs yes. she'd never been allowed to play before. But then her radio station was taken over, and then she was out of a job because it was submerged with another one from the mm. West. And suddenly she was somehow a second-class citizen. And that journey from jubilation to a new world where you don't quite fit, and then you start feeling a bit nostalgic. In the end, she emigrated, actually, started a new life, that woman. Yeah. Reminds me of that film, you know that film, Goodbye Lenin? Yes. It's kind of bittersweet nostalgia for something that's gone. Of course, 
yeah, onto the subject of nostalgia of the Soviet Union, I get a bit frustrated now that when I hear young Russians talk nostalgically about the Soviet Union, repeating the words they've heard from their grandparents, I feel like wagging my finger and saying, it wasn't like that. Let me tell you about Voronyush. <laughs> you two mentioned Chernobyl, and you said, well, we haven't seen the, the television series. Mm. Did you mention the Russians are doing one them, themselves? Oh, yeah, I, I don't have proper... I, I've, yeah, I, I've heard they were, but I, I don't really know the details. Okay, so. okay. And what film or television programme do you think best encapsulates the call? You mentioned Goodbye Lenin. Yes. Well, that's post, isn't it? That's yes. Post Cold War. What is it that the Russians have produced in a post Cold War mm. environment that perhaps we haven't seen or don't have access to that gives their view of what went on? Or no, I don't, I don't think I'm current enough on that to be able to tell you. Um, I'm sure there's lots of great stuff. I don't know. Uh, I really, I'll tell you one thing I really enjoyed, which is American, is that it's a television series called The Americans. Yes. Which is a fabulous story, which you might think was high fiction, but because we know it's true because of Anna Chapman and her colleagues, yes. of uh, putting illegals in um, the United States at a very young age to grow up as Americans, who then they or their children could be placed in high positions and, and report back to the Soviet Union. I love it because I love the psychology of it. Um, of, you know, there was two such different worlds, uh, Cold War America and Cold War Soviet Union. Of course, these illegals living as Americans with American children had no idea what their parents did were gradually losing touch with the old Soviet Union. So what they were remembering was just a memory. It wasn't what was happening now. But in in the in the later episodes of the of the final parts of the of the series, I thought it very well encapsulated what life was like in Moscow just in the last years because some of the action moved to Moscow. So I I enjoyed that a lot. It rang quite true in some ways. Fantastic. And you have clearly um, written a, a fantastic piece of non-fiction. What non-fiction book were you taking with you? Non-fiction. Well, um, I think I might go for quite sort of hefty books, perhaps, like um, Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago or The Matrokin Archive. Because um, if you're on a desert island, you've got lots of time. And there's all this fascinating detail in it about what really went on. Well, the Matrokin archive is, of course, his. He, he he was an archivist for the KGB. He brought stuff out, so it's it's his compilation and so through his editorial filter. But even so, a lot of de detail there. So um, I think rather than a narrative work, I would probably go with those two just to delve into. But if you wanted to talk about an overarching um, book which sort of tells the whole story, I think. My um, former professor at my old college in Oxford, in St. Anthony's, um, Professor Archie Brown, has written a very good book on the end of communism, which takes, I think that's right, is it The Rise and Fall of Communism? I'll have to check, it's over here on the bookshelf. That's right, The Rise and Fall of Communism by Archie Brown. So if you, he's a fantastic academic, he's so meticulous. He, he's a biographer of Gorbachev, and um, he has talk, gone back to lots of original sources, and he takes each 
place and episode. Mm. And um, so that's a very good non-fiction book. Oh, I, I read, we were just talking um, just now about um, the Korean airliner. I read the book by Taylor Downing, 1983. And what was, I found very interesting is that the Americans were in that area, is it called the Oshkosh Sea? You know, were not non-belligerent. Yeah. They were flying jets fast at boundaries and then yeah. flying away or just crossing over, you know. And so you can just see it all sort of ramping up and then this thing yeah. being the, the cherry on top of the cake. Well, you know, the, you know the, the Kursk submarine disaster in the north of Russia. Mm. 2001, Putin hadn't been in power, or maybe 2000. I think he, 2000, I think it's his first year as president. And it sank. Yes. And for a long, long time, the Russians said that um, it was NATO's fault. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, you know, maybe there were NATO submarines in the area. So it's not to say that they attacked the submarine, but maybe the submarine thought they were there and therefore, you know, reacted in a way which led to the accident. Mm. These things were much more complicated than you think. Well, thank you very much indeed. A pleasure. It's been a pleasure to nice talk to you. Talk to you. And uh, we will um, put details of the book and all the books and, and films that have been mentioned on the podcast notes. Um, but thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks again to James for that fascinating chat with Bridget Kendall. If you'd like to learn more and maybe didn't get a chance to write down those book recommendations, then head over to our show notes, which are at coldwarconversations.com slash 79. There'll also be a link in some podcast apps too. Don't forget, if you'd like to get a Cold War Conversations coaster and help keep us on the air, head over to patreon.com slash coldwarpod. Or again, click on the link in your podcast app. You can also help us by leaving reviews on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, our Facebook page, or with your favourite podcast provider. This really helps to raise our profile and get new guests on the show. And if you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for us in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, 
received the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.